0: like they were uh, suffering at the time. Uh, I've also found that my my feelings and my attitudes about the Thessalonians have been reshaped a little bit through this uh, series. Um, You know, sometimes your first impression of something sticks with you. Um, And growing up, uh, the church I went to, they had adult Sunday school classes, and one of those classes chose to name themselves the Bereans, Right? because they were older, they were wiser, they liked to study. And of course, they drew that from Acts 17, verse 11, which says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And so when I'd hear the word Thessalonians, my first thought was kind of that they were a bit of a spiritual foil to the nobility of the Bereans. But in fact, through our study here, we've seen that that reference in Acts was really to the general population of Thessalonica and the Jews there, the group that chased Paul out of town and then proceeded to pursue him. The church, the believers in Thessalonica, are actually doing pretty well, we'll say, right? Um, They're a church. We've learned that they're growing under persecution. And we see that Paul complements them and for the most part, he has positive things to say. We know, we know the character of Paul. We know that if you're messing up, he's going to tell you. And we don't, we don't see very much of that. So today we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, and let's just take a quick look at what we're going to learn today. Um, we're going to see what we can learn from the second coming of Christ. Uh, we're going to spend the bulk of our time on that. And then we're also going to touch upon Paul's heart for the Thessalonians, which has been uh, a recurring uh, theme throughout this series that we've been focusing on. So let's just take a look at our text for today. And uh, I'm working off of the NIV, um, and you can pretty much stay in 2 Thessalonians, and I think most of the other quotes I have from the Bible I'm going to project up, or you can try flipping around, but I know it gets to be a, a bit of an exercise. So today, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by a letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. There's a great deal of uncertainty that comes with examining the, uh, the end times. And I must admit, as someone that's been assigned to teach on it, there's a certain amount of anxiety that comes when approaching this, this topic. When we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, while He was here on earth and the wonderful knowledge He had, He even admitted that certain parts of the end times were hidden from Him. We read in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, but about that day or hour, no one knows Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the question is, what do we do with a topic that wasn't even fully revealed to Christ while He was here on earth? Well, in part, I believe that some of that was revealed to Him after He ascended. And the reason I believe that is that Revelation chapter 1 starts out with, "...the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants what must soon take place." And so there was information that Christ has that he wanted to pass on to his servants in the book of John. And John was given that task. It says in Revelation 4, verse 1, After this I looked up, and before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after that. So certain things John's told he's going to, they're going to be revealed to him. Um, But then even some of the things that were revealed to him were meant to be kept hidden. We read in Revelation chapter 10, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voice of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And I underlined the word, not myself. Um, So we have information that was given in the book of Revelation, and information about the end times is actually scattered throughout the Bible. We know that it's addressed in the book of Daniel. It's addressed in the book of Isaiah. It's hinted at in the book of Genesis. It's a topic of the New Testament. Jesus taught on it. Paul taught on it. Uh, and then we have the book of uh, Revelation. And much of what is revealed is presented through symbolism and allusions and allegories. And even though we have this information, we don't always know what they mean. Uh, even John himself was, was full of questions, and some I think he was afraid to ask. Uh, we see in Revelation chapter 7, it says, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we see from all this is that there's parts that we're supposed to know and understand, and there's parts that are, that are hidden from us. And I think if anyone is honest with themselves, when they read the book of Revelation and they look at the other references to the coming of the day of the Lord, the end times, that nobody has it all figured out. Nobody has figured out exactly when it is, who all these um, descriptions are of as far as the individuals involved, or even what the events themselves are really going to look like when they, when they play out. Um, if anyone feels differently, by all means come and talk to me, but I don't think anyone here on earth has ever figured it out. And I know many men with tremendous biblical knowledge and uh, tremendous wisdom have tackled this subject, And they've created timelines and events and equated what the illusions that are described to people um, and to nations and things like that. Um, But for the most part, history has shown them to be wrong. Because when the Lord has not yet returned, and most of them were dealing with the events of their day, and as those events passed, they discovered that it wasn't as straightforward as they thought. They didn't have a handle on it. So I believe that we won't really recognize these events until they happen. Now I believe when they happen, if we were to look at them, we'd say, wow, that's exactly the way John described it or the prophets described it. I, you know, Eagles and things like that, I didn't understand at the time, but wow, that's really exactly what it looked like. Um, but until that happens, I don't think we're really gonna, we're really gonna understand all these events. Um, so the question is, what, what do you do in light of a circumstance like that? Well, we're going to start by doing the only sensible thing, and that's to go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to guide us through this time. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word, Lord, the, the wonderful truths that are hidden in it, Lord, uh, just treasures of life. And Lord, we know that uh, on our own it's just words, and it's, it's uh, not of value, but Lord, through You... Through the gift of your Holy Spirit, it brings us life to read these words and to believe them and to put them into practice and to follow you. So, Lord, we ask that you would guide this time today, Lord, that we would seek your word and what you want to teach us from these passages. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. All right. So, the question is, what do we do now? Well, one option would be we would just run from this topic. We'd skip to the second half of the chapter and talk about... The information that's there. Um, Can we do that? Obviously, absolutely not. Uh, This information is in the Bible, and we know from uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is from God, that it's God breathed, and that it has a purpose and a use for us. So this passage is in the Bible, and it's in the Bible to benefit us. So we can't just ignore it. So what else could we do? Well, we could go down the route, and we could start cross-referencing what Paul says here with the other references to the end times in the Bible, and we could try and equate them to events and and line it all up. And I think at the end of the day, we might feel good that we put the effort in, but I think we'd have something that was pretty full of holes, and that could be you know, if we presented it to other people, they could punch holes in it really quickly. Um, And I I don't think that would really fulfill the the intent. I think it would be unsatisfying for us, and I don't think it's really what, what God would want for us from this time. Uh, so I'd suggest we do neither of those things. Neither do we run from it, nor do we try and make it a predictive tool for the future. Um, this morning what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at the things that Paul taught them about the end times, and I'd like to see what we can learn from them. And so I pulled out seven seven things. Um, from here, seven lessons that we can learn from the teachings on the end time. And I hope that by focusing on those, we'll actually come to some things that can help us grow as individuals and as a church. So, what's the first lesson? Well, the first lesson is that the day of the Lord was important. We know that this is an important topic. You know, we know it was important to the Thessalonians. They were very, very involved in it. We also know that Paul taught on it, we know that Christ taught on it, we know that the Old Testament prophets taught on it, and we know that the book of Revelation was devoted to it. So, if the Lord spent that much time putting it into the Bible, we know that it's important to us. And we know then in a general sense that it's important. Um, There's events that when they happen, right, we might say the world was never the same after that, or the world was forever changed. Um, In our own lifetimes, we might look at uh, the events of 9-11, and we might say, well, the world was never the same after that. And while it's true, maybe airport security was never the same, for the most part, the world continues to go on the way it has. And you could look at other events, Uh, the invention of the light bulb. It's happened, but, you know, it might have changed our, our working and our sleeping habits, but still the world continues on more or less as it has or the American Revolution. Or uh, if you want to go farther back, you know Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon and the rise of an empire. Well, that empire is gone and the world is still very much the same. None of these, world, none of these events have really changed the world in terms of, let's say, bringing a lasting peace to it, uh, curing poverty, disease, or any other ills that affil- afflict our world. None of them have been solved by these events. but. I would put forth that there are some events that have truly changed the world forever. And I've assembled a list, um, and here's what I've come up with. The fall of mankind, right? The event that broke the fellowship that man and God were supposed to happen, but also the event that foreshadowed the coming of the Messiah. God's promise to Abraham that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed establishing the line through which the Messiah would come. Certainly, the death and resurrection of Christ, where Christ took upon himself the sin of the world and opened a way for that fellowship to be restored. And then the coming of the Holy Spirit, where God sent his very spirit to indwell his his followers on earth and to empower them to do the work that he had in mind for them. The next event that will really change the world, and I'm confident of this, is the return of Christ. It'll be a time where He gathers those who know Him to Himself, and He'll restore the fellowship that we were meant to have with God. And that's going to be an event that really changes the world. So, of course, the Second Coming is an important event. And it's a day that as Christians, we should long for it. The Thessalonians were no exception, right? This this topic was really important to them. Two letters, Paul wrote them, just a couple months apart, right? Both of them have good chunks of it devoted to this topic. And in fact, if you were to go back and read through 1 Thessalonians, you'd find that every chapter contains a reference to the coming of the day of the Lord. And we also read in verse 5, it said, "'Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things?' So we know that in addition to writing about it, Paul taught them about it in, in person. We also know that at the end of Paul's life, the longing for the day of the Lord was very important to him. He extolled the virtues of it, and he encouraged his fellow Christians to long for it as well. In 2 Timothy 4, six, he said, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is, for me, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And so one of the ways we please the Lord is by longing for His return, by treating this day as if it's important. So what's the next, the next lesson we want to tease out of this? Well, that so looking forward to this day should be part of our worship because it shows confidence in the promises that the Lord made to us. During the Last Supper, Christ spoke of this. Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, "Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the day, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." So here's Christ. He's in the process of making the new covenant in His blood with His followers. And to that, He adds the fact that He is going to forego taking part in the fruit of the vine. He's going to forego this until He partakes with us in heaven. All right? So that's really intrinsic to every week we celebrate the communion of the Lord. And it's not just His death and His resurrection, but it's also the fact that He's coming again. And we do it, we do it confidently. We do it knowing that someday he's going to return. Whether we're living or whether we've passed on, he's going to gather us together with himself. And I equate this to, uh, if you're familiar with the, the Jewish custom Passover, one of the things they always declare is next year in Jerusalem. And what is that? Well, most of them don't really have an expectation of doing it next year in Jerusalem, but it's a reflection of their confidence in the promise of the Lord then he said, I'm going to gather all my people back to the Holy Land, that that will happen. And in the same way, when we take the bread we take the cup, we do it with the same confidence in the promise of the Lord that he's going to return and he's going to take those who know him into fellowship with himself. Now, the Thessalonians should have had this confidence. They should have known that they were in Christ and that they wouldn't be left behind. But, you know... We'll talk about their their uncertainty in a little bit. So what are some other things we can learn? Well, we can just see the general example of the Thessalonians. Um, So two weeks ago, Rocco spoke also on the coming of the day of the Lord. Um, And while the day of the Lord results in the faithful being gathered to him, it also initiates the time of tribulation and leads towards the time of great tribulation. Now think about the Thessalonians, right? They're here suffering under persecution. Persecution that is so great, so severe, they thought that they were in the midst of the tribulation. And when we read the book of Revelation, again, there's much we don't understand, but what makes what's very clear in there is that there are some very, very hard times ahead for those that go through the tribulation. Times of plague and famine and war. And death, you know. Rocco even just talked about the effect of the rapture. Right, planes may be crashing, cars driverless, um, just chaos going on. Um, you know, if you want a little picture of it, you know, we have the Left Behind series. They they attempted to to look at it um, and just talked about how the world was thrown into chaos by these events, and it led to the rise of new leaders and things like that. So these are very hard and frightening times. But we also know what Alan preached on last week, and that's that the Thessalonians were a church that were growing, and they were experiencing true growth. So what did Paul write to them? He wrote to them, "'We always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing.'" Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So, through everything they're going through, <clears throat> their faith and their love are growing, and they're being shown worthy of the kingdom of God. And so the lesson from this is that the circumstances around us are no excuse for not adhering to the promises and the word of God. You can be a church that's experiencing real growth. You can be an individual that's experiencing real growth regardless of the circumstances that are going on around you. I can almost assure you, you will never go through anything worse on this earth than what the Thessalonians were going under. Keep in mind, they thought they were in the tribulation. Their persecution was so bad. So we can't let our circumstances dictate our growth in Christ. It goes beyond that. So what else do we learn? We learn, do not be easily unsettled. Now, when I used to go to Hydewood, one of my jobs there was to go around to uh, the Sunday school classes and take attendance, and it was a big building, and I think the teachers liked the fact that I would come around and, and check on them and make sure they were okay in addition to to getting the attendance. Uh, one Sunday, one of the teachers, she, she grabbed me beforehand, and she said, I just want to let you know that today I'm going to take the kids down to the gym for a while because I have a demonstration. I need more space, um, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll go down to the gym and get it. She goes, And then she adds in, because I didn't want you to come and find the room empty and be afraid that the rapture had occurred. And maybe not to be outdone, but I I responded to her that if there was one thing I was not worried about, it was missing the rapture. Because I know when it happens, I'm going to be part of it. Well, I was then and still am sure that when the rapture occurs, I will be a part of it. I'm also sure that when it occurs, It's an event that will not be missed. The word is translated as revealed, to be made known. Um, And Christ spoke about this. And what did he say about it? It's Matthew chapter 24, verse 26. So if anyone tells you, There he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Here he is in the inner room, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As I said earlier, the world really will be changed by this event. It's not an event that can be missed. Now, this teacher I was talking to, she she just wanted to make sure we weren't actually worried something had happened to her and the kids. But she also understood that the prospect of missing the, the rapture would be incredibly unsettling for any Christian. And that's the case for the Thessalonians when they thought they missed it. They were incredibly unsettling, unsettled by it. And what I put forth is that being unsettled in that fashion is a weakness for the church. And it's one of the few things we have here that Paul did chastise the Thessalonians for. And we can see and we know that many people have wandered away from the will of God by becoming unsettled by the events around them. Now perhaps one of the most clearest examples is King Saul, right? He's there, he's, there's a battle about to happen, there's events unfolding around him that he feels he has no control over. He's supposed to wait for Samuel to make the sacrifice, right? But he goes ahead, he decides he can't wait for Samuel and he makes the sacrifice himself. And as a result, he, he loses his kingdom. So there, there was a consequence, but he allowed himself to be unsettled by the events around him and to act according to how he was unsettled rather than what he knew was right. So why did the Thessalonians become unsettled? Well, yeah, it might have come in the form of a a message from somebody or a rumor that was floating around, but the real reason they were unsettled is because they allowed those things to supersede the truths that they already knew about God and in his promises. And so the lesson for us, of course, is to know the promises of God, and to write them on our hearts and to let our thoughts and our actions reflect the fact that we know those promises are true. Just like Paul told me, he said, do not be deceived. In verse 3 he said, do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. And so I would put out there, there's no need to be unsettled because, as we said, the world's going to be changed by this event. And I would put forth that you'll know it when you see it. And so many things happen, as Christ said, they say he's out in the wilderness. Don't go out in the wilderness. They say he's in the inner room. Don't go out to the inner room. You'll know it when you see it. And I have an example from, from my life. Uh, when I was a freshman, I joined the cross-country team. And uh, so I've never done cross-country before. One day the coach says, okay, guys, it's time to go out and, and practice running up and down some hills. So you guys are going to go and you're going to run up and down Candace Lane 10 times. And I heard some of the older runners go, oh, okay. So we go out running and we start getting to the hilly part of town. So we come to a hill. Is this Candace Lane? No, John, this isn't Candace Lane. You can see the street sign. It says River Road or whatever. We go around the curve. There's a little bigger hill. Is this Candace Lane? No, John, stop asking you'll know Candace Lane when you see it. That's what they told me. Well, we keep going, and we actually approached Candace Lane from from the top, and we got there, I knew it. It looked like the earth just dropped away in front of you. So there was no question that we were there. Well, Jesus tells them these events cannot occur, or Paul tells them that these events cannot occur until the lawless one has been revealed. And if God's going to reveal him, you'll know it. So don't be like me with Candace Lane every time you see some little thing, is this it, is this it? When it happens, it's going to be clear. So our question for ourselves is, are we steady in our faith and consistent in our actions? Or do we allow the events around us to unsettle us and cause us to divert from where we should be, just like the Thessalonians? That leads us to our next point, which is that damage can be done By carelessly handling this topic, right? The Thessalonians, they chose to go by some rumor or some report that they had heard other than what they were taught. And because they did, they got themselves twisted up in knots, right? They were so concerned, so worried, and it was all unnecessary. But even more than that, it would have caused them to start to doubt some of the fundamental principles of Christ that they had been taught, right? Perhaps they would have doubted their security in Christ because they knew that they followed him and now the rapture has occurred and they weren't part of it. Or maybe they would question whether they were ever saved before. And that is not something that Christ wants for his people. He wants them to be sure of their salvation. He wants them to have confidence in him and in his promises. And the, the Thessalonians did themselves a disservice by wandering away from this. And the Thessalonians were not the last to make this mistake. Uh, Rocco spoke about a number of people who have tried to take the events um, of the end times of the coming of the Lord and uh, predict them, maybe for their own purposes or just because they saw things unfolding around them that they couldn't understand. Um, He went through quite a number of people that have all been proven wrong. Uh, I'm just going to give you one example, and that's obviously Harold Camping, right? And so... Where do people go when they need information that's not in the Bible? Well, you go to Wikipedia. And so, what does Wikipedia say about Harold Camping? It says, he was an American Christian radio broadcaster, author, and evangelist. Beginning in 1958, he served as president of Family Radio, a California based radio group that broadcast to more than 150 markets in the United States. And you'd look at that and you'd say, wow, what a guy. You know, Christian radio spreading the gospel author, doing everything he's supposed to. But it also says about him, Camping predicted that Jesus Christ would return to earth on May 21st, 2011, whereupon the saved would be taken up to heaven in the rapture, and there would be following five months of fire and brimstone and plagues upon the earth, with millions of people dying each day, culminating in October 21st, 2011, with the final destruction of the world. He had also previously predicted that Judgment Day would occur on or about September 6, 1994. His prediction was widely reported in part because of the large-scale publicity campaign by Family Radio. It prompted ridicule from atheist organizations and rebuttals from Christian organizations. Now, when you say the name Harold Camping, which of these two pieces of information do you think pop into people's heads today? Most people will remember the chaos and the disillusionment that occurred because he wrongly predicted the end of the world. Likewise, the Antichrist has been a topic that people have handled improperly and has given the church a reputation for slapping that label on anyone we just don't like. Um, you know, if you dig through church history and the history of the world, you'll see that there's always been a ready supply of men that could be pegged as the man of lawlessness. And perhaps this is by design, but people have taken it upon themselves to make that assignment of who that man is many times. Many thought it was Nero. Nero is long gone. Some people just by default made it the next Roman emperor that came along. After the Reformation, some people thought it was the Pope, right? He had set himself up in the temple of God as in charge of the church, and it was just one step for him to take that a little farther and make himself the man of lawlessness. Uh, In the last century, people have looked at, you know, men of terrible evil like Hitler and Stalin and said, well, they must be the Antichrist. People have also used what's known as geometrics, which is to look at um, letters, assign them values, and try and get to that number 666, which is in the Old Testament Um, And people have gone through all sorts of gymnastics to prove different Roman emperors and different people throughout history fall into that category. In fact, one time in college, I received an email, one of those email chains that used to go around, that took the letters in Barney the Purple Dinosaur and came up with the number 666 from that somehow. Um, while While Barney is not my favorite character, he certainly doesn't fit the bill. And I don't think it pleases the Lord when people do this, right? We know that there are forces working against the Lord. He promises that. But the revelation of the lawless one is his responsibility. It's not something to be determined by our own cleverness, all right? He's made, he's made it clear that there are things we just don't know, that the hour and the day are unknown. So I would say that if this topic is handled properly, It will make us long for the day of the Lord and the fellowship that we'll enjoy with Him, right? But if we handle it poorly, it's going to lead to anxiety. It's going to lead to disunity. It's going to lead to disgrace being brought on the church from within and without. And I would put forth that whatever reflects poorly on the church and the church's behavior would reflect poorly on our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we should not engage in such behaviors So, what else do we learn? Well, we learn in this that God has both the power and the plan. We can see through Paul's discourse on this topic that everything is under his control, even when it looks like things are going haywire. Looking back at verses 3 through 8, Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed for destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the splendor of his coming. So the first thing from Paul, he says, don't let anyone deceive you. He says, God has already told you what is going to happen, and these events are going to happen exactly as God has promised, because he's in control of it all the way through says the day will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. And again here we see that God is the one that controls the revelation of the man of lawlessness. We also see that the man of lawlessness is doomed for destruction. Now we live within the timeline, right? One thing happens, then another thing happens, then another thing happens. God does not. God has already destroyed the man of lawlessness. And so for us, While it's still in the future, it's as good as if it's already happened. We also read about how the man of the lawlessness is being held back until the proper time. He can't even reveal himself until God removes the obstruction. And finally, the man of lawlessness will be defeated by Christ. And it's not going to be a great clash of arms or a long battle filled with heroic deeds a great tactical maneuvering. What does it tell us? It tells us that Jesus Christ will overthrow Him with the breath of His mouth and destroy Him by the splendor of His coming. And this thought is echoed throughout the Bible. In the book of Isaiah we read, He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He will slay the wicked. We also read in Revelation how it describes Christ coming on a horse with a sharp sword from His mouth, and that sword slays his enemies. And I think there's general consensus on this point is that that means he will speak a word and his enemies will be defeated because he is in complete control of the events. So what's the, the last point? The last point is, what's the call to action? Well, I would submit that related to this topic, there is not a call to action. Now, before you get too excited about that, what you have to look at is the teaching that came on this topic, right? The day and the hour is unknown. This is not some test that's coming up that we can know about and cram for in the last couple of days. Rather, we look at the teachings and the parables of Christ. And the command always there was, be ready, right? There was always an event that was unknown. The bridegroom was returning, the king was returning, the master was returning, and he wanted to find his servants about his work. And so the command and the call to action is a continuous command. Be ready. Live every day in the promises of God as if He was returning that day because that is what He told you to do, whether it happens now or 10,000 years from now. Now we're going to take a quick diversion. I know we're getting towards the end of our time here to look briefly at the, the heart that Paul has for the Thessalonians. So he says, "...but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ." So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word or deed. Now, we have a lot to thank Paul for. I'm sure he would say that anything noteworthy he did came through Christ working in him. And that would be true. But he did write 12, perhaps 13 books of the New Testament that contain wonderful truths about um, the Word of God and the salvation that we have in him. Um, And while you can look at the disciples sometimes and say they were a ragtag group and I probably wouldn't make some of the mistakes they made, although if we're honest with ourselves, we're we're pretty much in that group... Um, When you look at Paul after his conversion, you see a man that's devoted, he's intellectual, he's dogmatic, he's gentle yet fierce. He's willing to face hardships, beatings, imprisonment, and uncertainty, all for the sake of the gospel. In addition to his theology that he put into his letters, Paul put his character into his letters, and what he did was he gave us an excellent example of a Christian character that cares for the church. So in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes his feelings towards the church as being like a child, but also like a mother and a father, and these are some of the characteristics that we would pull out of it, that he was meek, that he was loving, he was firm. He was encouraging. And we see those attitudes repeated here in 2 Thessalonians, right? He's just written to them a couple months before. Now he's writing to them again, and it's the same topic. I liken this to a child that's afraid of a thunderstorm, right? They're afraid of the storm, you comfort them through it, everything's good. The next time there's a dark cloud on the horizon, the same thing happens. They're scared, right? The same thing happened with the Thessalonians. They, they were concerned about the coming of the day of the Lord. And Paul wrote to them once. And then when it was necessary, he wrote to them again. And he didn't start off his letter by saying, come on, what's up with you guys? We've already covered this, right? No, he says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to them, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us. He deals with their insecurity first. Once he dealt with their insecurity, then he'll seek to build them up because it's his sincere desire to see them grow in Christ. So he deals with them with gentleness in their weakness. And that's sort of how the Lord dealt with us, right? So in simplest terms, you could say that Paul's heart is to be a model of Christ, right? Now, this is a big role to take on. but but Paul took it on willingly. We see three times in 1 Corinthians, he tells people, imitate me. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And then in Philippians, he says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So, Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we might avoid taking on the mantle of a follower of Christ, right? It places a very high level of expectation on us, right? We'd rather be known as the nice guy who does well and gets along under his own power, as opposed to having the exact same set of actions and being compared to the perfection of Christ and realizing that we continue to fall short and have that pointed out to us. Well, Yes, if we do set that up as the standard, we will fail, and God deals with us gently. But Paul was willing to carry the mantle as a reflection of Christ and encourage people to imitate him. And through the Holy Spirit, there's nothing that stops us from doing the same thing. And finally, we see Paul as an encourager, right? He has reassured them, then he instructs them, then he encourages them. And I see this as a complete process. The Thessalonians are going in the wrong direction. So first he reassures them. He says, stop, stop. He stops them. Then he teaches them. He says, no, these these events can't occur until the Lord allows them. He points them in the right direction. And then he encourages them in Christ. And that pushes them now that they're on the right direction to move that way. And of course, just as Paul challenges the Corinthians and the Philippians to imitate his behavior as he imitates Christ. That should also be our goal. I want you to think about what this place would be like if we took it upon ourselves, not under our own power, but through the Holy Spirit to make sure that our lives were a reflection of Christ and that we could look at each other as an imitation of Christ and imitate each other that way. This would be an incredible place, but more importantly, than that. Think about how pleasing it would be to the Lord if His people were committed to being imitators of Him. It's one of the things He calls us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this teaching. Uh, Some of it is hard, Lord, hard to understand. We know through Your Holy Spirit, Lord, that it will be profitable to us. Lord, we pray that we would be like the Thessalonians where they were strong, that we would avoid their mistakes. And we also pray that we would be like Paul, Lord, not on our own strength, but Lord, through you, we would have so much confidence in the love you have for us and the fellowship we have with you, and that we're walking in your ways, Lord, that we could tell other people, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Lord, it's our desire to live lives like that, not because of the claim they will bring us, Lord, but because of the honor and glory that they will bring you. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.